Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 22, 2 Samuel chapter 14. Well, I can't begin to tell you the challenge that I feel in presenting to you the deep matters that are present in 2 Samuel chapter 14. We're only going to be able to delve down so far without getting so bogged down that the time spent will outweigh the benefits from it. Now further, the life lessons are such that I'm afraid there's going to be a great deal of discomfort for us to bear in our examination of these holy scriptures today. And much is called for in our our attitudes and worship if we will take to heart what we read if we're willing to put aside our insistence that as followers of Messiah Yeshua our own hearts are currently superior for the determination of justice and mercy as compared to God's commandments as given back in the ancient days Amnon's, Amnon, David's firstborn, is dead. In retribution for the rape of his sister Tamar, Avshalom had plotted for two full years since that dastardly incident to kill his half-brother. The moment had arrived at the annual sheep-sharing occasion in Baal Hetzor when work gave way to partying and drunkenness dulled the senses sufficiently to briefly drop one's guard. Abishalom, not wanting to dirty his own hands, followed the blueprint of his father David. He commanded his closest, most loyal servants to assassinate Amnon, much like David had commanded Joab to see to the death of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. The Lord had promised David that despite the heavenly and eternal forgiveness that was given to him by grace for all of his heinous sins, the remainder of his days he would suffer as one who was cursed on earth with violence and with death being the epitaph of his household now and on into the indefinite future. I want to remind us all that such a Similar kind of forgiveness is what we receive when we trust Christ as our salvation. Eternal rest and security in the Lord's presence is indeed afforded to us. But in no ways are we held harmless from the earthly consequences of our trespasses against man and God. We are liable for punishments and miseries on account of our rebellious behavior until we breathe our last. Only then will we be completely released from these inevitable effects of our inability to overcome our own evil inclinations. Listen to St. Paul describe this condition for us. Turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1409. I'm going to read from verses uh, 13 to the end of the chapter. Then did something good become for me the source source of death? Heaven forbid... Rather, it was sin working death in me through something good, so that sin might be clearly exposed as sin, so that sin through the commandment might come to be experienced as sinful beyond measure. For we know that the Torah is of the Spirit. But as for me, I'm bound to the old nature, sold to sin as a slave. I don't understand my own behavior. I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the very things I hate. Now, if I'm doing what I don't want to do, I'm agreeing that the Torah is good. 
But now it is no longer the real me doing it, but the sin that's housed inside of me. For I know that there is nothing good housed inside of me, that is, inside my old nature. I can want what is good, but I can't do it. I don't do the good I want. Instead, the evil that I don't want is what I do. But if I'm doing what the real me doesn't want, is it no longer the real me doing it, but the sin housed inside of me? So if I find it to be the rule, a kind of perverse Torah, that although I do, I want to do what is good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner self, I completely agree with God's Torah. But in my various parts, I see a different Torah. One that battles with the Torah in my mind and makes me a prisoner of sin's Torah, which is operating in my various parts. Oh, what a miserable creature I am! Who will rescue me from this body bound for death? Thanks be to God, He will. Through Yeshua, the Messiah, our Lord. No doubt a measure of divine mercy is regularly given to those who confess and contritely repent or none of us would remain alive. None of us would be useful to the kingdom. And with no doubt, we who trust are given a greater power in the form of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin in our lives, even avoid it. But even so... Who among us doesn't have our regrets almost daily? See and experience the results of our sin playing out in the lives of our children. And it grieves us. And we wonder in hindsight what our lives might have been if only we would have exercised that new nature and allowed the old one to be truly dead to us. And thus followed our Lord and our King in true obedience. I also have no doubt that David was tormented night and day with these same thoughts as he witnessed deception and destruction inside of his own family. Knowing with certainty it was going to continue on and on and on. For several more generations, there was nothing he could do about it. Despite the fact that it was Avshalom's servants who had assassinated Amnon, Avshalom also bore blood guilt in the Lord's eyes for this crime. Even in secular Western law codes, the chief conspirator to commit murder is held as responsible for the death as the one who physically carries it out. Thus, Abishalom hightailed it to his grandfather in Gesher once he knew that Amnon was dead. He was unwilling to face his father or even the unlikely event of civil justice. Now, we need to be clear that although commentators and even, even a Bible character in this story 2 Samuel chapter 14 refer to David banishing Abishalom. In fact, that's kind of a mischaracterization. Abishalom had banished himself. He wasn't chased out of Israel. He was nothing more than a criminal on the run who fled to avoid prosecution. Although one wonders if anything whatever would have happened to him since David did nothing to Amnon for raping Tamar. Apparently not even confronting Amnon with so little as a verbal lashing. Well, we're going to reread chapter 14 now. But we're going to begin at chapter 13, verse 38, because this verse rightly belongs as the first verse of chapter 14, not the final verse of chapter 13. I remind you now that the original scrolls weren't divided into chapters and verses. This was the work of Jewish and Christian scholars centuries after even the New Testament was canonized. Sometimes the points of division aren't well done. and Thus we can kind of accidentally disjoint 
one chapter from another and, and, and miss some crucial timing. So open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, we're going to start reading with uh, verse uh, 38 and uh, go on through all of chapter 14. That will be page 348 in your complete Jewish Bible. So Avishalom fled, went to Geshur, and stayed there three years. But as King David became reconciled to the death of his son Amnon, he was increasingly filled with longing to see Avshalom. Joab the son of Seruah perceived that the king missed Avshalom, so Joab went to Tekoa, brought from there a clever woman, and said to her, Please, pretend you're a mourner. Put on these mourning clothes and don't anoint yourself with oil, but appear to be a woman who has mourned for the dead for a long time. Go into the king and speak to him in this fashion. And then Yoav told her just what to say. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell down with her face to the ground, prostrating herself and said, King, help! And the king said to her, What's the trouble? And she answered, I'm a widow. And after my husband died, my two sons were out in the field and they got to a fight with each other and there was no one to separate them and one hit the other and killed him. Now the whole family has come against me, your servant. They're saying, hand over the one who hit his brother so that we can put him to death for killing his brother. They want to destroy the heir as well and thus quench my one remaining coal and then my husband will have neither name nor survivor anywhere on earth. And the king said to the woman, Go back home. I myself will decide what to do about you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord king, let the guilt be on me, my father's family. The king and his throne be guiltless. And the king answered, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me. He won't bother you anymore. And please, she said, let the king swear by Adonai your God that the blood avengers won't do any more destroying so that they won't destroy my son. And he said, as Adonai lives, not one of your son's hairs will fall to the ground. And then the woman said, please, allow your servant to say something else to my lord the king. Go on, he replied. And the woman said, why is it then that you have produced a situation exactly like this against God's people? By saying what you have said, the king has virtually incriminated himself in that the king does not bring home the son he banished. For we'll all die someday. We'll all be like water spilled out on the ground that can't be gathered up again and God makes no exception for anyone. The king should think of some way to keep the son he banished from being forever an outcast. Now the reason I came to speak about this matter to my lord the king is that the people were intimidating me. So your servant said, I will speak now to the king. Maybe the king will do what his servant is asking. For the king will listen and rescue his servant from the hands of those who would destroy me and my son together from our share of God's inheritance. Then your servant said, Please, let my lord the king say something that will give me relief. For my lord is, my lord the king is like an angel of God in discerning good from bad. And may Adonai your God be with you. And then the king answered the woman, I'm going to ask you a question and please don't hide anything from me. The woman said, let my lord the king now speak. And the king said, who put you, did, did, did Yoav put you up to this? And the woman answered, as you live, my lord the king, when my lord the king speaks, no one can avoid the issue by turning either right or left. Yes. Yes, it was your servant Yoav who had me do this. He put in my mouth every word you have heard your servant say. Your servant Yoav did this in order to bring about some change in the situation, but my Lord is wise. He has the wisdom of an angel of God when it comes to understanding anything going on in the land. And the king said to Joab, All right, I'm granting this request. Go bring back young Avshalom. Yoav fell to the ground on his face, prostrating himself, and he blessed the king. And Yoav said, Today your servant knows that I have won your favor, my lord king, because the king has done what your servant has requested. Then Joab got up and went to Geshur and brought Avshalom to Jerusalem. However, the king said, Let him return to his own house. He's not to appear in my presence. So Avshalom returned to his own house and didn't appear before the king. Now in all Israel there was no one more praised for his beauty than Avshalom. There was no defect on him from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. 
he would cut his hair only once a year at the end of the year. And the only reason he cut it then was because it weighed him down. He weighed the hair from his head at 200 shekels. To Av Shalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. Avshalom lived two years in Jerusalem without appearing before the king, and then Avshalom summoned Joab, planning to send him to the king, but he refused to come to him. He summoned him a second time. He still wouldn't come. So he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is close to mine. He has barley there. Go, set it on fire. Avshalom's servants set the field on fire, and then Joab got up and went to Avshalom at his house and asked him, Why did your servants set my field on fire? And Avshalom answered Joab, Look, I sent a messenger to you to come here so that I could send you to the king to ask, Why did I come from Gesher? It would have been better for me if I'd stayed there, so now let me appear before the king, and if I'm guilty of anything, he can kill me. Joab went to the king and told him, and when he had called for Avshalom, he went to the king and prostrated himself with his face to the ground before the king, and then the king kissed Avshalom. Avshalom remained with his mother's side of the family in Gesher for three years. And during that time, David was struggling to overcome this tragic loss of his firstborn son. You know, losing any child is a terrible thing. But losing a firstborn was catastrophic because of the high status given to the firstborn both by custom and by the Torah. However, it seems as though after about three years, David was finally healed over the loss of Amnon. And the opening verse of chapter 14, as our Bibles have it, says something to the effect that Joab noticed that David's mind or heart was always towards Absalom. It's it's speaking about that three-year time frame. And our complete Jewish Bibles say that the king missed Avishalom. Now that's kind of a dynamic translation to get across the idea that David was sorely lonely for his banished son. This is a bad translation and let's clear this up right now. What it says is that the king's lave was all Avishalom. Lave means heart. But when it's used in this way, heart means mind. It means conscious thoughts. Since Christian scholars and the church has since time immemorial completely misconstrued the intent of the word lab, heart, as meaning something like like soul or, or as deeply and sincerely felt emotion, then one can understand why these same translators would automatically assume that David was feeling a great longing to see Absalom. But in fact, the meaning is not about emotion and is neither negative or positive in and of itself. Rather, it is that the word all tells us that the nature of David's conscious thoughts about Absalom were not so positive. All can be translated as on or over. But more usually in the Bible, it's used to mean against. Therefore, it is that David's heart was against Absalom. As Alfred Edersham points out, certainly if the king's heart was in favor of Absalom, he wouldn't have left him sitting in Gesher for three years. And then after sending for him, refused to see or speak with him for two more years. Rather, it is that David wanted nothing to do with Absalom, and Joab rightly perceived this, and with some motive in mind, decided to see if he couldn't remedy that situation. But what might have been Joab's motivation? for getting David to relent and bring Absalom back. There's been a lot of speculation about this. But I think that we have to recall Joab's character and his actions to come to some kind of a reasonable conclusion. First, since David was getting old and frail, 
And since Joab was a full generation younger than David, Joab would have been rightly concerned with who David's successor might be. See, Joab was a very powerful man as chief commander of Israel's formidable military, by default, he was also second in command over all of Israel. However, he could be replaced by the king anytime the king felt like it, even though thoughtful political consideration would be given to that kind of a drastic move. It was common that when a new king ascended to the throne, he would handpick those who were most loyal to him to be his royal court. And the most important position outside of the king was general of the military. Now recall that when David ascended to the throne and then a few years after a few years managed to also become king over the northern tribes of Israel who had been under King Saul, that Saul's former general was a fellow named Abner. And David negotiated with Abner in order to unite the northern and southern Israelite tribes. And when Joab determined that his job as David's chief general was in danger of either being given to or perhaps shared by Abner, Joab murdered Abner. So Joab was going to manipulate matters to ensure his own continuing position with the next king of Israel, no matter who that might be. Second of all, Absalom had popular sympathy with the people of Israel. The people saw him as a hero of sorts, who had been provoked into justifiably killing Amnon due to the terrible outrage that Amnon had committed upon Absalom's sister. Not only that, But as the final verses of this chapter tells us, Absalom carried with him all the attributes that tended to attract the interest of the multitudes. He was the most handsome man in all Israel, dashing, courageous, and admirably willing to accept the consequences, no matter how unfair, of killing his father's firstborn in order to uphold his own family's honor. So no doubt, with Amnon gone, Avshalom seemed like the sure bet to succeed David. And so Joab hitched his wagon to this likely winner and supported him. Thus, Joab had this sort of informal bond with Absalom. And the longer he and David remained estranged, the more likely someone else might rise up the ladder to be next in line as king. And this hypothetical prince-in-waiting might not be so willing to ally with Joab. Thus, Joab's best move was to facilitate reconciliation between father and son. So to, to facilitate that, the clever Joab goes to a woman in the town of Tekoa, located about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. And the village, by the way, eventually became famous as the as prophet, uh, the, the hometown of the prophet Amos. Well, here this woman is called a Hakam Isha, a wise woman. This is not an official office. She's not a prophetess. She's not a sorcerer. She's not anything that's to be seen as religious or religiously oriented or even divinely appointed. It's just that she's simply known as being smart, quick-witted, able to persuade, manipulate, to think on her feet. This is a person who's not easily rattled, but also not above doing something that's not entirely up and up. Okay, She remains unidentified because she's seen as but a minor character in all this. Well, Joab recruits her, no doubt, with some kind of unstated reward to go to King David with this heart-rending story about her two make-believe sons. The idea was to trap David into having to take the step of bringing Absalom back or look pretty hypocritical. So she is asked to look like a woman who is in mourning. 
sackcloth for clothing, unwashed, ashes smeared all over her garment and herself, no anointing oil on her skin that was really the basic cosmetic for even poor women of that era. Yoav went so far as to tell her exactly what to say to the king. No doubt it was Joab who personally arranged for this small town woman to see the king. After all, there were layers of bureaucracy between the common folks and the king. One couldn't just show up at the city of David and receive an audience. David must have been questioning from the beginning why, in Joab's eyes, were this woman's problems so extraordinarily important that it warranted the king's personal intervention. She appears before the throne, looking forlorn and distressed. She throws herself dramatically on the floor and says, Help! And David gives her permission to state her problem and she proceeds to convincingly regurgitate the words that Joab had given to her. Well, the story is that she's a widow. And not too long ago, her two sons were out in the field when for some unknown reason, one killed the other. There's no witnesses. But now, the extended family is demanding justice. That the surviving son, who is the murderer, be handed over to the family Goel Hadam, the blood avenger, who will surely kill him in retribution. But if this happens then this widow will have no sons. This will also mean that her deceased husband will have neither name nor survivor anywhere on the earth. Well, let's examine her story to understand what all of this meant to a person from that time. Now, first as a widow, her only hope of personal survival was from male family members. And since she had sons then according to custom and to the laws of Moses, they were responsible to see to their mother's care for the rest of her life. However, if her sons died, that unless her husband's brother married her in a levirate marriage, she would be destitute, possibly not even live very long. None of this explains, of course, uh, rather, none of this is explained in, in, the, in, in the verses. But that's because this is just how Hebrew society operated. It didn't need to be said. It was just common knowledge. And second, she says she is concerned about her husband's name continuing on. And, and for that, a son needs to remain alive. See, the issue here is the following. In this era, there was no concept of dying and going to heaven. In fact, the Hebrew way of thinking was rather par for the course with the other Middle Eastern societies' concepts of death and afterlife. You died, you were buried, and if the gods willed it, then your essence lived on in another world. In many cultures, including the Hebrew culture, at least for a time, that meant you'd need food and drink. So the surviving family was responsible to occasionally bring food and drink to the gravesite and literally pour it down a hole or to bring it into a tomb and then just leave it. Another aspect of the dead person's essence living on was that part of that essence would continue on in their children, usually sons. Thus, if a man died childless due to a barren wife, or if a man had children but they all died, then his life essence was literally terminated. His spiritual afterlife came to an end. Even more, there was a mysterious power seen in speaking a person's name. So if a man had no sons to carry on his bloodline and his name, then his name would no longer be spoken out loud. And so the family line ended. And then this was all seen as a great horror and a tragedy. Actually something that only the most wicked were supposed to ever suffer. 
Third was the issue of civil justice. The surviving son was a murderer. The one that murders a family member, the, the one that murders being a family member doesn't change the need for justice. And the Torah is clear that a murderer is to have his life taken for his crime. Even more, the family of the victim is to exact justice by themselves killing the murderer and the person who is the designated family Goel Hadam, blood avenger, especially bears that duty. This too is a Torah command, so there is no wrong in it. But on the other hand, if proper justice was carried out in this case, then A, the widow would become destitute, and B, her deceased husband's spiritual life essence would be snuffed out. Well, like other aspects of this story that the author used to make a point, this was designed so that the ancient listener would hear the echoes of a well-worn tale that was a staple around the campfire. The story of Cain and Abel. They too were out in a field where there were no witnesses, where there was no one to intervene. Cain unjustly killed his brother Abel. Cain is not executed, but he's banished from the land with a mark on his head, warning others not to think that they could take justice on him. Thus the idea was to draw a similarity between the Amnon-Absalom situation, the widow's two sons, and Cain and Abel, to draw them all together. Now, from David's viewpoint, how was he to weigh this case? I mean, this was very difficult. What mattered more? To allow well-defined Torah justice to take place such that this widow would indeed lose her sole remaining son to the blood avenger? Or did this woman's well-being mean that the blood of vengeance ought to be blocked for her sake. After all, executing the one son wasn't going to bring back the other one. The woman begged and insisted that before she left his presence that David would make a vow that her surviving son would not be killed. And the magnanimous king of Israel pronounced a royal edict. He actually invoked Yehovah's holy name that no one should even speak to her of the matter any longer. The son should live. The blood avengers should in their hunt for him. Case closed. But notice something ironic. David essentially pronounces sentence upon his own son without realizing he'd done so. See, David says to the widow, not one of your son's hairs is going to fall to the ground because I order it. Yet it's not going to be terribly long before Avshalom, the one who's being compared to this surviving son in this story, is going to be caught by his lavish hair in a tree. And then he was killed. Was David right, as the rabbis tend to say? to offer that widow mercy for her son? Was he right? Before she insists on David's vow, which he freely gave, she makes this interesting statement. It's no throwaway. My Lord, let the guilt be on me and my father's family. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. And to this, David says, oh, this isn't necessary. The surviving son, I hereby pardon. Here is where the immense value of learning God's Word, beginning at Genesis 1, taking the Torah and the law at face value and acknowledging its validity and worth even for the modern believer, this helps us to understand what's happening here. And it helps us to extract a great lesson that we simply must apply to our lives and our society. The Torah demands blood for blood. 
The law of Moses gives no choice but that a person who murders is to be executed. The circumstance simply doesn't matter. Listen to Exodus. Don't turn there, but just listen to Exodus 21, 12 through 17. Whoever attacks a person and causes his death must be put to death. If it was not premeditated but an act of God, then I will designate for you a place to which he can flee. But if someone willfully kills another after deliberate planning, you are to take him even from my altar and put him to death. Whoever attacks his father or mother must be put to death. Whoever kidnaps someone must be put to death, regardless of whether he has already sold him or if the person is found still in his possession. Whoever curses his mother or father must be put to death. I don't have time, unfortunately, to go into all the nuances of manslaying. But you can go back into our study of the Torah to review it. However, understand now that not all killing is murder. Accidental killing is not murder. Killing an enemy in battle is not murder. Killing in self-defense is not murder. But let's go back one step further now and look at the book of Numbers on the subject. Again, don't go there. I'm just going to read it to you. Numbers 35, verses 14 through 21. You are to give three cities east of the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan. These will be cities of refuge. These six cities will serve as a refuge for the people of Israel as well as for the foreigner and resident alien with them so that anyone who kills someone by mistake may flee there. However, if he hits him with an iron implement and causes his death, he's a murderer. The murderer must be put to death. Or if he hits him with a stone in his hand big enough to kill someone and he dies, he's a murderer. The murderer must be put to death. Or if he hits him with a wood utensil in his hand capable of killing someone and he dies, he's a murderer. The murderer must be put to death. The next of kin avenger is to put the murderer to death himself. Upon meeting him, he's to put him to death. Likewise, if he shoves him out of hatred or intentionally throws something at him, causing his death, or out of hostility strikes him with his hand so that he dies, then the one who, was struck, uh, who struck him must be put to death. He is a murderer. And the next of kin avenger is to put the murderer to death upon meeting him. Just as in any modern secular society, see, there's varying degrees of homicide. Some's justifiable, some's not. Even in secular society, there are also varying degrees of justifiable homicide and varying degrees of unjustifiable homicide. And so each has a different kind of remedy to it. And thus, in some cases, no penalty is called for. In other cases, a monetary penalty is ordered. In still others, jail time might be in order. And in the worst instances, either life in prison or the death penalty is handed down in our society. Therefore, the Torah even allows sanctuary cities where a killer can go to be safe, provided his was not an act of hostile, intentional killing. Rather, it was a kind of killing where the offense was not intended, or nor could the result of his act have been reasonably expected to cause the death of another person. So what about this case being brought before David? Well, in this case that the wise woman is bringing before the king, it clearly sounds like Numbers 35.21 where one person strikes the other in hostility with his hand and the other one dies. The law says he is a murderer. And the goel hadam is to put him to death. This is not an option. It's a command. Now let me remind you that the case that this woman is bringing to the king isn't even real. It's concocted by Joab as a means to manipulate and trap David into allowing Avshalom to return to the royal court. But David thinks it's real. He thinks it's real. 
and he rules based on the facts as presented. Now I'm going into depth on this because I want us to come to the realization that how we tend to look at such a case, how the rabbis tend to look at it, even how some judges and how some of the church looks at it, often runs completely counter to the Holy Scriptures. Okay? And this is something that has become so harmful to our relationship with God and it has brought ruin upon our, our society and our communities and our families. And David says that essentially his sympathy for the plight of the widow outweighs the need of God's justice for the murderer. The woman doesn't try to hide the fact that one son intentionally murdered the other one. There were no extenuating circumstances presented. This was not an accident. The only possible extenuating circumstance could have been something like the surviving son saying that while he had indeed killed his brother, that it was not out of hostility, but rather self-defense, or, or that although he struck him with his fist, he didn't mean to cause his death. And since there are no witnesses, then his word would have been taken for it. But that's not the case. The woman seems to substantiate that this was a confessed case of unjustifiable homicide. That indeed there was blood guilt and she was willing to take on that guilt herself if her son was spared. And what she was looking for was a royal pardon for the admitted wrongdoing. Scriptures tell us there is no atonement for murder in the law. That is, there is no animal sacrifice that can substitute the life of an innocent animal for the life of the criminal. By the way, notice that David didn't sacrifice after he had Uriah killed and confessed this to God. The only payment that God will accept as legitimate is the life of the murderer. Further, blood guilt is laid upon the entire society, local society when a murder is committed. The only way for the local society to relieve itself of this blood guilt is to follow through with God's law and execute the criminal. If the society refuses to do such a thing, then that society bears the blood guilt right along with the criminal. Why is society equally guilty? Because God demands proportionate justice. A life for a life. And if the society refuses to do so, then such disobedience will bear the penalty. See, the widow woman was completely aware of this. And thus she offers to David that she and her father's family will bear this blood guilt instead of David as the representative of the civil justice for Israel. In other words, she fully understands that God's law is that the only route offered by Jehovah in response to this intentional murder is the execution of the criminal. Mercy is not allowed because life is so important to God. David takes the bait. And he essentially says that his view of mercy is such that he pardons the son. David's wrong. He has no right to do this. The Bible offers no exceptions and folks, we have no right. We have no divine authorization to do anything even in our modern times since the advent of Christ but to execute a justly convicted murderer or we bear 
collectively the blood guilt and our society bears the blood guilt. Life in prison is not a substitute. The issue is about the blood. And certainly we have no right to pardon anyone unless they were wrongly convicted. But as we discussed last week, because a large segment of Christianity says that God's sole remaining attribute is love, and then the resulting logic says that perfect love wouldn't demand the life of anyone, including that of a killer. Besides, execution is really nothing but human revenge. And human revenge and love are certainly at opposite ends of the spectrum. Therefore, we must not execute murderers. Rather, we must forgive them. Judaism, on the other hand, due to its overriding belief in humanitarianism, also says that execution is wrong. In fact, the rabbis find an amazing way out for King David. Despite what the law of Moses clearly says, the rabbis say that David was justified for siding with the woman, with the woman but for reasons that I think are going to surprise you. Let me quote for you from the Reuben edition of the Art Scroll Commentary on the Book of Samuel. Here's what the rabbis say about this. Since they, the two sons, were in an isolated place, the two quarreled in the field, there were no witnesses to warn the murderer of the penalty. And according to Torah law, any crime committed without such a warning cannot be punished. The woman meant to intimate that Absalom, who wasn't warned before his crime, was therefore not culpable. Although the king has the prerogative to impose punishment, even in such a case, in order to protect society from wanton criminality, he does so at his discretion. At his discretion, he has the right to take the to let the law take its course, if he feels that's the better course. Understand what's being what's meant here by Torah law. It means the rabbinical rulings on the Torah, not any stated law of Moses. Their rationale is that despite the mother of these boys readily confessing that this was an undeniably hostile murder, since there was no one there to warn the surviving son that he shouldn't kill his brother, then there should be no penalty. And since this is to be compared to Avshalom, since there was no one there to warn him the killing Amnon might be wrong, then he committed no crime. So since David is supposed to be utterly sinless in the thinking of Judaism, then here we have this mind-boggling twisting of logic and Torah to make it that if a criminal is not specifically warned that he's about to commit a crime, no matter how obvious it is, then it cannot even be considered a crime. Not even if a murderer can, comes out of it. And since that's the case, then David was perfectly right to pardon the act of murder by the surviving son, and he was right to take no action against Absalom for murdering his brother, and thus, once again, David is completely without fault. Now you can see why rabbis are lawyers a lot of times. <laughs> modern secular society has simply decided that as human beings we just don't have the human right to execute a criminal no matter what he did that as advanced intellectual beings our inherent goodness dictates that since the execution of the criminal can't bring the victim or victims back to life then it's rather pointless to kill the criminal and thus extinguish yet another human life. Recall how within the past year that the UK released the Lockerbie bomber who blew up an airliner killing almost 300 people after just a few years in prison. The reasoning? He was sick with cancer. And so human mercy says it would be inhumane for this man to die in jail. 
Besides, it wouldn't bring back a single life. Thus, he was freed. He was sent back to his own society where he now lives as a hero. And to secular minds, this is justice. Folks, I'll close with this. One of the reasons that our community, state, nation, the world in general is in a death spiral of confusion and immorality and violence is because we live under God's curse of blood guilt. The entire earth is soaked with the blood of murder victims while their killers are intentionally allowed to live. God's required justice and remedy for this goes wanting because we see our human justice as better than His divine justice. Not executing a killer violates one of God's most important and fundamental laws and because we're so in love with love because we're so convinced that our hearts are the best judge and because so many Christians have decided that God's laws and justice are a thing of the past and because Judaism thinks that humanitarianism is God's intent for men on earth and because secular humanists believe there is no higher authority than our own inherent goodness and morality and enlightened intellect then we're just going to continue on this destructive path until Messiah comes again to put a stop to it. Let me be clear. For the true believer in Messiah, Yeshua, the curse of eternal separation from God is lifted because His Son paid our ransom. But that has changed nothing as regards the carrying out of His laws on earth. Spiritual pardon is not earthly pardon. Earthly life does not cancel physical death. Love does not annul justice. Our refusal to rid the world of wickedness using the Torah law as the standard simply allows more and greater wickedness to multiply and thrive. (coughs) David was wrong. He committed yet another terrible sin, which of course would lead to more death and violence within his family. And it would push the nation of Israel towards sliding down a slippery slope into God's wrath. We'll continue with chapter 14 next week.